from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Well, coming up on today's program, Mr. Dan Rowe will discuss visual problem solving. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Rock Science Show. are faced with a challenging problem, especially those after business matters, the knee-jerk reaction is, of course, to employ complex spreadsheets and mathematical analyses to reach a solution. However, the human brain may in fact be better suited to solving problems visually. Well, how can we use visual thinking to solve these problems? Join us today on the Grok Science Show to discuss these issues is Mr. Dan Rome. Mr. Rome is the founder and president of Digital Rome Inc., a management consulting firm that helps business executives solve complex problems through visual thinking. His new book, The Back of the Napkin, Solving Problems and Selling Ideas with Pictures, details his ideas for a general audience. Mr. Rome, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Charles, my pleasure. Thank you. Well, it's certainly our pleasure, and I think this is certainly a very fascinating book. But I'm curious, what is it you actually mean by uh, visual thinking? Well, my elevator pitch, if you will, for that is the way I think about visual thinking is it goes far beyond just drawing. What visual thinking really is, is taking advantage of our innate ability to see, now both with our eyes and with our mind's eye, in order to discover ideas that would have otherwise been invisible, then really rapidly and intuitively develop those ideas, and then finally be able to present those ideas to someone else in the way that they're just going to get. How is it that people don't normally employ this method of thinking? Well, they do, and the interesting thing is that you can kind of divide the world up into two groups of people. Those who are good visual thinkers and know it, and those who are good visual thinkers but think that they're not. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because most of the time I'm in the business world and I work with business people. And by and large, business people fall into that second category. Let's put it this way. All of us are born visual thinkers. We're incredibly good at this. And if you think about it from a neurological perspective, close to 75% of the neurons that are in our brain that are processing sensory information are processing vision. Vision is both that complicated, that complex, and also that powerful. It's really what the bulk of our brains are doing when they're processing the sense information is, is processing vision. But what's really fascinating is every time, every single time I walk into a business meeting or a lecture or a workshop or a seminar, someone will say, you know, Dan, let's talk about solving problems with pictures, visual thinking, that sounds great, but you know, I'm not a visual person, this isn't for me. And my response to them is, well, you know, that's fine, we all recognize that we have different strengths and talents, but frankly, if you're visual enough to have been able to walk into this room and find a place to sit down without falling down, you are visual enough to understand everything that we're going to talk about and visual enough to get something out of it. And if I may, the proof that we all know how to do this goes back to when we were kids. And if you think about it, if you have a chance, walk into a kindergarten class, and of course with the teacher's permission, you know, ask the, the little six-year-olds, how many of you can draw? And every one of them will raise their hands. Hmm. And then ask, well, how many of you can read? 
and maybe two will raise their hands. Now, come back to that same class 10 years later, 16-year-olds, 10th grade, ask the same questions. How many of you can draw? Maybe two or three will raise their hand. How many can read? Everyone will raise their hand. Now, don't get me wrong. There's absolutely nothing wrong with learning to read. I mean, that is fundamental. But what's missing in this equation is we already knew how to solve problems with pictures and knew that we did when we were six. But by the time we get to be 16, or more, more to the point, by the time we get 26 or 36 and we're running businesses, most people in business have completely forgotten that and even have gotten to the point where they're completely convinced that they're not visual. And, and that's really the challenge that I like to try to address. So in a sense, you're saying we're born visual thinkers. It's just that through our education and training, we've trained to work on problems differently. I would say that's part of it. I would say that the other issue is that, and I find this quite frequently with people in businesses, they say, you know, I'm concerned about this idea that you have of solving problems with pictures. I'm not sure I know how to do that. And as I take them through some of the exercises, it becomes clear that they do, in fact, know how to do that. The real issue is nobody ever said it was okay. Now, that's pretty unique to business. I mean, let's face it, if you're in one of the sciences, you probably spend a lot of time what I would say solving problems with pictures. And what I mean by that is you probably spend a lot of time studying charts and diagrams and schematics to understand how things work. The same applies, of course, to engineers. The same applies to architects and, and certainly to designers. But when you move to the other side of the business curtain, if you look at the people that are more interested in the quantitative side of business, the people that are more often than not making the strategic decisions or the financial decisions or the project management or operational decisions, these are people who have not in their higher education had any application of visual thinking or frankly even learning to draw. Now the really interesting thing, and thankfully this is starting to change, is that you cannot find an MBA course on earth that teaches drawing, nor can you find any business school class anywhere that teaches you anything about improving your ability to see. You know, those are left pretty much exclusively to be the domain of design schools or engineering schools and things like that. And it's a real shame that the people in business haven't had a greater opportunity to explore this because my own personal experience has been the moment you start to draw out your idea on a piece of paper, the lights go on in your own brain. And certainly when you're drawing that picture in front of someone else to try to sell them an idea or convince them of a particular concept, the lights really go on in their brain as well. It's actually an interesting point you bring up in your book is that you're leading people through a process of ideas and leading them to the conclusion that you yourself come up with. And that's more powerful than actually just presenting the conclusion. Well, yeah, and if, forgive me, but you know, your, your uh, program being focused a little bit in science and technology, I'm going to slip here just a little bit into the little bit that I've been able to learn about neurobiology and sort of cognitive science. And trust me, I know just enough to be really dangerous, but I have, <laughs> in the process of working on the book, spoken to a number of leading vision scientists. And it's a pretty fascinating thing. It's starting to become clear. We're all familiar, of course, with this notion of the difference between the left brain and the right brain, the, the left and right hemispheres of our neocortex processing different types of information. And there's been a lot of discussion about how accurate is that, but fundamentally it does appear that the two sides, the two hemispheres do process different types of information. Fair enough. It's also pretty well established that most of the verbal processing that we do and verbal thinking takes place on one side of the brain. The interesting thing is that the processing of vision takes place really in a distributed way across all sides and really all corners of the brain. When you are talking and drawing a picture simultaneously, 
a fascinating thing is happening in the brains of your audience. If you were just talking, it's very likely that most of the processing that they would be doing would be in their verbal side. Fair enough. But when simultaneously they see a picture emerging that you're creating, the linkages between the visual centers and the verbal centers, many of them actually go through the corpus callosum in our brain, where a lot of the emotional processing also takes place. So in a way, the magic of this visual thinking, especially from a presentation side, is you're essentially obligating your audience to have an emotional reaction to the story that you're telling or the concept you're delivering in a way that they wouldn't necessarily have if you were just relying on the words. It's almost the way our brains are hardwired to operate, and that's a pretty fascinating thing when you're making a presentation to realize. Indeed. It certainly must be challenging trying to explain that over the radio as well. Uh, well, you know, I have often been challenged by the idea of saying, let's talk about solving problems with pictures and let's talk about it. <laughs> and there's a funny story, Charles, if I might. Um, when I was first selling the idea of the book, now this is back about two and a half years ago, I uh, had a great agent and we took a trip to New York and we kind of did the round robin tournament. We went to all of the major publishing houses that do business books. And I will tell you that there was a lot of initial interest in this concept of the book. But several of the publishers said to me, you know, we publish business books. They don't have pictures in them. Would you be able to write the book without any pictures in it? And I said, wait a minute. What did I just tell you the <laughs> subtitle was? Solving problems with pictures. The point I want to make here is that, thank goodness, this wasn't the case with Adrian Zackheim and the folks at Portfolio and Penguin. They got it immediately. But it was kind of an interesting and figuratively eye-opening experience for me to see how little most business people and even business authors and business publishers really understand the power of being able to take advantage of our visual thinking skills. Well, the book is certainly filled with very interesting case studies and examples of how to go about thinking with pictures. And I think a lot of people might think, well, I can't draw. But really, in your book, the sort of drawings you're talking about are really quite simple. Well, yeah, and in fact, I really do. Early on in any workshop or any training session or uh, even any project, I really make the distinction right up front with the people that I'm working with to say, look, there are artistic pictures out there in the world, the kind of things that Leonardo would have drawn or Rembrandt would have drawn. Those are not what we're talking about because typically the way we as people judge the quality of an artistic drawing is how well has the artist captured what he or she saw out there in the world and then put it on a piece of paper. Those are not the drawings we're talking about because the drawings we want to make are the drawings that only reflect what we see in here, in our own minds. And more often than not, it really is possible for all of us, once we get started and kind of get over, in some cases, the initial inhibitions of this, it really is possible to map out our own thought processes with really simple pictures. I mean, frankly, if you can draw a circle and a square, and I don't care how good they look, but if you can draw those and draw an arrow between them and draw a little stick figure off to the side, you've got the entire toolbox all ready to go. That's all you really need. Hmm. So your book is divided into three sections, discovering ideas, developing ideas, and selling these ideas. I wonder if you can expand on that. Yeah, well, the thought is there is a process to visual thinking, and I don't say this entirely facetiously because this is a business book. It really needs to have a process because most business people really get an idea and, to your own term, really grok an idea when they see that there is a repeatable methodological process behind it. And I faced the initial challenge early on of realizing if I was just going to go off and start talking about drawing pictures and getting better at seeing, 
I better have a pretty good quantitative leg to stand on. And I realize that there is a process. And the important part of the process is that it's something that we all know how to do. And I call the process, it's a four-step process of visual thinking. And the four steps are very simple. First, we look at something. Then we see it. Then we use our mind's eye to imagine the possibilities. And in the end, the fourth step is then we show what we've seen in our own mind's eye. So very simple. Look, see, imagine, and show. And the reason I really like to emphasize that there is this process is that, especially for people who are kind of concerned about their ability to draw, I like to point out that the drawing part only takes place at the very, very end of the entire visual thinking process. And if we can first get a little bit more comfortable and a little bit better at understanding simply how we physically look at the world and then how do we actually see the things that are out there and how do our brains understand and build the patterns and the pattern recognition that's important to get us through the day. If we can get better at those things, automatically we get better at understanding how our imaginations process information visually. And once we're good at that, frankly, the drawing itself just flows. Point being, if we can get better at looking, we can get better at seeing. If we can get better at seeing, we improve our imaginations. If we improve our imaginations, we all know how to draw. It's pretty remarkable, and it actually works. Uh, in your book, you also talk about six different ways of seeing. Yeah. Now, okay, here's where we start to have a little bit of an overlap with some of the more recent discoveries in vision science. And uh, this is a bit of a slippery slope because I am not by any means a vision scientist, although I have spoken to a number of them. And what vision science is starting to understand are the fundamental aspects of how we neurologically see. And one of the critical things that's become clear is that vision works as a parallel process and a serial process. And I trust that most of your listeners are going to kind of understand the concept there that a lot of the processing of vision takes place along parallel pathways in our brain. So what that means is we are simultaneously seeing different visual aspects of the world around us initially and only later on in the whole visual processing system when we go to kind of higher level processing do all those individual pieces get combined together. And kind of in shorthand, you could say that the ways that we actually see the world, you could break down according to what I call the six W's. And these should be no surprise to anyone who's ever been through fifth grade English class because they're essentially the same things that our teachers always taught us when we were writing a fair five-paragraph essay, is you start with the who and the what, and then you talk about the how much, and then you talk about the where, and then you talk about the when, and out of those you get the how, and then finally the why. So there you have it, kind of the six W's, which map directly to the ways we see. And I won't go through all six, but let me just give you two specific examples. When we open our eyes in an environment, anything, and, and we could be looking at a landscape, we could be watching a movie, or we could be looking at a spreadsheet, our eyes don't know the difference. The biochemical process of getting that information in and starting to understand what it is is identical no matter what we're looking at. And one of the pathways where a bunch of the data that's coming in through our eyes is shunted off to has this lovely scientific name of being the what pathway. And pretty much the sole purpose of all of those electrical signals that are sent along the what pathway is to go into the parts of our brains that do process the who's and what's of the world around us. The parts that say, oh, I recognize that thing, that thing over there, oh my goodness, that's my daughter. Now, interestingly enough, at the same time, another bunch of the electrical signals are being shunted into a completely distinct pathway. 
actually physically going into a very different part of the brain, which has the really lovely term of being called the wear pathway. And what the wear pathway is identifying is the spatial relationships of all of these unnamed objects out there to ourselves and our own understanding of what is our spatial relationship to the world at large. So it's purely about the wear of things. Now, those are just two examples, but they're pretty interesting because if you think about what that means, it means if, for example, I'm standing there in a swamp and I see an alligator off to one side, part of my brain is saying, that object is an alligator, but that part has no idea where the alligator is. A different part of my brain is saying, there is something big about 10 feet away off to my right side and slightly below eye level. And it's only later on that they get combined for us to understand, oh, that's the alligator. Now, the six ways we see, the reason that these are interesting is I thought, well, if there's six ways that we actually see the world around us, this who, how much, where, when, how, and why, then it stands to reason that we ought to be able to create six fundamental pictures, one for each one of those different ways of seeing. And this is what I've come up with, and I call this kind of the six-by-six six rule. And this is a little bit to describe over the radio, so I, I, I will just do a couple of them. If the problem that we face, if the situation that is in front of us is one that's primarily oriented around understanding the who and what of what we're looking at, so let's say it's maybe a political problem or an issue of understanding who the people are in front of us, the picture that we would draw to represent and begin to kind of deconstruct that problem would be a simple portrait. And again, we're not talking about a Rembrandt-style portrait. We're talking about a very simple sketch that just contains enough of the sort of physical attributes of the thing that we're looking at so that we can distinguish it from something else. Now, that's very different than, say, we face a problem of when. Let's say we're a project manager, and our real concern is knowing that we've got a deadline three weeks from now, and we've got a limited number of resources but a tremendous amount of things that we need to get done in that amount of time. The picture that we're going to want to use as our baseline picture for solving that challenge will be a timeline. And the point is, within the book, identify these six very basic elemental components of any problem-solving picture. And then what I really like to do with people is say, first exercise is let's identify our problem. Once we've been able to do that, Let's identify what's the most interesting or highest priority aspect of that problem for us to solve first. Is it the physical location of things? Is it the temporal relationship of things? Is it the causal relationship of things? And once we know that, then I'm going to tell you, I can give you exactly the drawing that you will want to start with as a way to clarify that particular scene. And again, it breaks down just into the six. Does that make sense? Indeed, indeed. So it's really identifying which of these different aspects you're, you really need to be concentrating on and applying the correct method then. Exactly, and applying the correct picture to it. Hmm. And of course, there are also, for advanced people, people who are comfortable with this, there are combination pictures. And that's where things start to get more interesting. And if you think of most of the kinds of charts and graphs that are out there, in particular in business, you know, they tend to be pretty simple combination charts of, say, well, and we see a lot of these these days. If you look at stock ticker prices or, or if you look at chart of the Dow, what it really is is it's combining both a how much picture with a when picture. And the how much is typically the vertical scale representing the share price or the price. And the horizontal scale is the when scale indicating change over time. And that's just one simple example. But you can imagine there are a bunch of combination charts that can be made. And again, I do believe that we can make a picture. I really do believe this. 
any problem whatsoever, whether it's a logistics problem, whether it's a resource allocation problem, whether it's a financial problem, frankly, whether it's a personal or even an emotional problem, any problem can be made more clear through the use of a picture, if not outright solved. Mm. And it's because problems do break down into these elemental pieces, and having these nice fundamental drawings to reflect on them and these sort of combinations, once we start to play, we can find that we really can map out solutions to a lot of things that on first blush might have looked completely unresolvable. You've certainly consulted with a number of companies about this method. How has it been received, and have people been able to uh, learn the method very quickly? It's been received exceptionally well. In many cases, I'll go into a client, and they don't really know what they're getting. But I would say I'm batting 100% on this, that within a few minutes, once we get started, people really, really do get it. Now, that's different than all of a sudden saying that everybody knows how to do it themselves. And in many cases, especially with a lot of your more quantitatively oriented, analytically oriented business people, it does take a little bit more time. First, they've got to get comfortable with the idea that this isn't just oversimplifying everything and isn't just coming up with gloriously superficial renderings of problems at such a high level that it's useless. That's really not what I want to show people. I want to show that the pictures can be simple, especially the need of the audience, but it's equally powerful to make pictures that are much more elaborate if that's what we really need to show. And I think it's important at this point, Charles, if I might just make a very quick distinction between simplicity and complexity, because I'm always asked. Uh, it almost seems to be kind of a knee-jerk reaction from many people when I talk about solving a problem on the back of a napkin, is they'll say, well, doesn't that inherently mean that you oversimplify everything? And I say that the challenge isn't a breakdown between simplicity and complexity. Every problem at some level is complex. The issue is we're not trying to simplify them. What we're trying to do is find simple ways to clarify the complexity of the problem. And a picture can be a very simple way to do that. And typically what you'll find with the more complex problems is it does require a couple of pictures to really get people to understand the nature of the problem and then a couple more pictures to get people to start to see what the solutions might be. But I, I just like to make that distinction because I think it's important to recognize that a simple idea can be just as bad as a complicated idea. Simplification isn't the answer. Clarification really is. Indeed, indeed. Curious, how did you yourself come to the realization that pictures are really the way for clarifying issues? Well, you, you know, I'm one of those people that has just always drawn my whole life. I mean, my earliest memories are of drawing. And when I started out in my career, my first job was as a graphic designer, and, and that made perfect sense because everybody in design draws all the time. But then as years passed and I found myself moving more into managing businesses and then into management consulting, I found that by being the person in, in the room who drew a lot, that may be kind of weird because most people in business don't draw. And it really surprised me that they don't because every time I was in a meeting, you know, whether it was with a potential customer or a partner or potential employee, what have you, and I would pull out a piece of paper and start drawing or go to the whiteboard and start sketching out the idea, it would be as if some kind of magic was happening in the room. People would suddenly pay this extraordinary level of attention that they hadn't been paying when we were just talking. And it shocked me that more people in business weren't doing this because, frankly, it seemed like such a no-brainer way to talk about ideas and to get people's attention. So that was really the genesis of deciding, you know, hey, someone ought to write a book on this, and that, that's what I decided to do. <laughs> uh, well, the book is certainly uh, very fascinating, and again, the name of the book is The Back of the Napkin, Solving Problems and Selling Ideas with Pictures. Mr. Rome, thank you very much for joining us today. on the Charles, my pleasure. Thank you.
And you were just listening to Mr. Dan Rome discussing visual problem solving. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. I put your picture away Sat down and cried today I can't look at you while I'm lying next to her. All right, we're ready to play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Visual Thinker or Blind as a Bat. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know which they are and maybe a little reason why. Mr. Rome, are you ready to play the game? I think I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Person number one, Visual Thinker, Blind as a Bat, Steve Jobs. Visual Thinker. The guy is entirely visual. If you watch one of his keynotes... He not only loves to show the visual interfaces of all of the applications that are running on those beautiful Macs, but the machines themselves, you know, whether it's an iPod or anything else, they are incredibly visually beautiful. And I've got to believe that the guy is one of the great visual thinkers of all time. Great aesthetic sense, I would say. Absolutely. All right, number two is the Wizard of Omaha, Warren Buffett. Warren is probably a good visual thinker as well. And the reason is this. When Warren talks about why he makes the investment decisions that he does, He speaks so clearly and so lucidly and with such conviction that he is able to almost convey his ideas. Granted, they're in words, but convey his ideas in a way that I literally see what he's talking about in my mind's eye. So I'm going to go with Warren Buffett as being a visual thinker. Uh, Number three is uh, the Fed chairman, Ben Bernanke. Uh, Can I have another option than blind as a bat? (laughs) It seems to me I'm going to have to go with the latter, and I don't know much about uh, Mr. Bernanke. I mean, obviously, I follow the market like many people do. It does seem like we're getting a little bit too little too late, and frankly, from a visual thinking perspective, if anybody at the Fed had been maybe a little bit more active in their looking at what was going on at the market and seeing the patterns that were starting to emerge even many months ago, I'm thinking that we would not be finding ourselves in this kind of, geez, can we fix it maybe a little bit behind the ball situation we're in right now. So I don't want to call him blind as a bat because there certainly seems to be some vision about how we're going to fix this. But given those two binary choices, that's the direction I have to go. Okay. Well, we'll see if anything happens there. Number four is Donald Trump. All right. You know, I don't want to skew all towards the visual people, but I'm going to say that Donald certainly in many ways, like Warren, has a pretty powerful vision of where the market is going and how he's going to play in it. And although he's made a number of bad calls, he's certainly seemed to make a lot of better calls and certainly seems to be able to get other people to see what he's seeing. So I'm going to call him a visual thinker. Okay. And finally, number five is the president of the United States, George Bush. Okay, I'm going to sign off now, Charles. (laughs) Uh, Blind as a bat. Couldn't see an obvious idea if it were put right in front of him. It's an interesting thing. Can Can I just go off on a tangent here? And I promise this isn't political. It's an interesting concept because everybody in my family is a pilot. My father was in the Air Force. My mother was in the FAA. I have my pilot's license. And I have always had a tremendous amount of respect for people that fly because, especially from a visual thinking perspective, I can find few examples where you have to be really good at being able to develop a sense of situational awareness through a limited number of instruments that are feeding you very quantitative information. In your own mind's eye, you have to be really visual at understanding what those instruments are telling you and creating a really good three-dimensional picture in your mind of what's going on. And I've always regarded pilots in particular as really great visual thinkers and people who are typically able to solve their way out of a problem well. 
Now, President Bush was a pilot, and I find it shocking that I don't feel the same thing about some of the decisions that we've been able to see him make. The sense of situational awareness doesn't quite seem to be there as well as one would like from a fighter jock. Hmm. So, for what it's worth, <laughs> blind as a bat. Okay. You know, I feel bad for saying so. I wish it wasn't that way, but I've got to call it the way I see it. So Okay. Well, we, we do want to thank you for sticking around playing the game. And, of course, uh, again, talking about your book, which was The Back of the Napkin, Solving Problems and Selling Ideas with Pictures. Thank you very much again. Charles, thanks so much. It was our pleasure. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. Berkeley Grox, I'm Franklin. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.